Episode 43 of the False Neutral Podcast, a member of the Hooniverse Podcast Network. With me today is my co-host, Eric. Garrett is currently trying to get his mother's car unstuck from the snow. Our- yeah, Portland, Portland's not used to dealing with multiple inches of snow. <laughs> Which he, he outlined on our last broadcast, last couple of broadcasts. They're having yeah. a tough winter this year. Uh with us tonight is our guest, Mark Atkinson. He goes by Maker Online, and he is the guy that built the Hooniverse Car of the Year winning BMW Alpha, what would you call that, concept that, come to life? <laughs> right, right. That sounds good. You, There's a whole lot of different things that uh, we can talk about, but why don't you start from there, because we're kind of associated with... Uh, Hooniverse, which is very much not a motorcycle uh, website. It's it's a four-wheel website. I kind of right. play the role of the, the two-wheeled guy, and I've been falling down on the job, not including much two-wheeled content there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you found the designs and what possessed you to say, hey, I think I'll do that. Well... Um, normally I spend the winter building a new land speed engine for the land speed bike. But since we didn't run in 2015 because of moisture on the salt, I had a ready to go deal. So I had a, a winter. I'm not very good without having lots on my plate. So my father posted a picture of Alpha on my Facebook page. And I just immediately fell in love with it. So I became, you know, was friend, friends with Mehmet uh, Erdem, who designed that. Um, you, you did not know him? No. That, not at all. Okay. In fact, I after I decided I wanted to build this because I had the winter, I needed something to do, and I thought that thing needs to come to life, I m- sent him a message on Facebook and said, I want to build this thing, and he wouldn't respond. So I, followed, I was following him on Instagram, sent him a message on Instagram, same thing, no response at all. So anyway, I decided to go ahead and build it anyway. So that's that's kind of the the was the start of that thing. Now, uh, eventually, he did contact you and 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 authorize this, so to speak. Right. Well, I once I got the chassis done and I started on the the mold for the bodywork, I just couldn't get beyond building somebody else's design. So. I kind of played with some other ideas and laid out some other, you know, um, kind of body. So I was going to finish the thing, but maybe using a different body style, something different. But it just nothing was as beautiful as the as the alpha body. So I finally called him out on Instagram and translated my words into Turkish and threw it out there. And it kind of forced him to respond. So, you know, and I asked him later, why didn't you respond to any of my previous messages? And he said, well, I get people that request me all the time to build my projects and they never do anything with them. (laughs) I said, you were nuts enough to actually build the thing. So, yeah, he got on board and we've now become really, really good friends. I mean, we probably, you know, we text back and forth, I don't know, sometimes 30 or 40 times a day. So about just everything, just complete nonsense. So yeah, he's a really great guy. I I think that's one of the coolest things about the internet is how sometimes, you know, you can get those relationships with people 
that you might never meet. You know, no, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Eric Garrett and I have never met each other. Uh, oh, really? Uh, I, there's a couple friends of mine that I count as friends, uh, Brad and Cameron from Camden Tub podcast. Uh, I text one or the other of them probably once a day and we've never met. We live in different parts of the country. So it's, uh, it's very cool. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. It's an interesting story. You know, it's interesting to me and really fascinating as I was building this, you know, and I built this at work. You know, I drugged the carcass into the weld area. Our welder is now kind of retired. So now what, what, what is, what is your work profile? Oh, I'm a machinist. Okay. So I work for a company and work a regular job uh, as a machinist, um, and we do mostly industrial pump parts, but we do a little bit of everything. Like today, I was making slides for a, a 38 um, uh, semi-automatic gun, which so we build a little bit of everything. But we have a little bit of a fabrication shop. So, but like I say, the welder is pretty well retired. So I just drug the the carcass of Alpha down there one day and so anyway i ended up building the whole thing down there but I, when i got to the body i would at my lunch break i would go in and sand on it or, or work on it and i would send pictures to Mehmet as i was doing this asking him what do you think about this line what do you think about because all of this was done just off of the the three concept photos that are on, you know, that you, you've seen. Right. I mean, it, there's mm -hmm. really nothing else that I did. This was just kind of a, what, you know, comparing. And I would get this, I would talk to him, you know, and he's halfway across the world and he would say, no, I think it needs to have a little more curve here and a little more. Just thinking, you know, 20 years ago or maybe 30 years ago, this would have never happened. You know, snail, snail mailing back and forth pictures that would have never been able to happen. And I did that. We did that every day for probably three or four months as I was shaping the body. Yeah, fax, faxing, international faxing and fax resolution probably doesn't work, does it? Right, right. <laughs> and does anybody have fax machines anymore? No. Well, I'm just saying, like, from if this was 20 or 30 years ago, right, you know. Right, right. And, and, oh, by the way, so we don't need to call Chile or Akai. We just call you for our next open gun. Is that what you're saying? It's something like that, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. I, I, although we don't ever make the finished parts, I only make bits Slides. and pieces. Yeah. So I, you would have to somehow source them from all the other shops okay, out there. Sorry. Pete and I are both firearms enthusiasts. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's a good shooter. I'm a collector that just ha looks for excuses to get my, my collection out and nice make noise with them and hopefully put some holes in paper uh, yeah, i shoot i actually do shoot uspsa so yeah he, he's yeah, anyways quite a few we have a, a bunch of manufacturers here in in utah um we do a bunch of silencer parts and mm -hmm. you know, oh yeah. yeah you got dead air and and silencer co and silencer co we do yeah. lots of parts for them so uh -huh. i don't cool. know that i should even be saying that i don't know how <laughs> confidentiality anyway, thing is yeah, yeah. weird but you know, no, no, whatever no. they're all at shot show they're not listening yeah so how far how far from the from the salt flats are you are you are you in greater salt lake there or? i yeah i well i just live just barely north of of salt lake so it's 125 miles okay so yeah when i used to uh, uh years ago i would drive home every night and Oof. sleep in my own bed. So, you know, as usually since I run a two stroke, I had seized during the day. So <laughs> home repairing, putting yes. new pistons in, but yeah. Yeah. So it's not very far. Okay. Um, and then you've had, well, you, you mentioned last year or 15, uh, you had moisture problems and was it this past was 16 as well. Didn't that get flooded out as well? Uh, no, we had a pretty oh. good 16. Okay. Yeah, I think we ran every event um, in in 16. 
Although everybody was so the, the the field was was really tiny, there wasn't a lot, which worked out well for us that did run because we were just doing pass after pass, which normally doesn't happen because yep. everybody was so afraid from the past two years because they canceled Speed Week in fourteen and fifteen. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of was fourteen and fifteen. So yeah. for those that don't know, and I I know well, I mean I kind of know about the Salt Flats all my life, but so if I understand this right, and you you'll you can explain it better because you're there all the time. Um, so that area, you, you need some amount of moisture in there, or the lake to the lake the lake bed area to get some water to bring up the salt. But then it needs to dry out at a certain point, so it forms the crust, so that you can actually um, drive and ride on it. But there's also been a problem because there's all a ton of people who are, or there's a big group that's mining all the salt out of that area. Is that, and that's causing additional problems. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty close. They're, they've been mining, uh, and what they do is they, they don't want the sodium. They want the potassium or the potash out of, out of the, the minerals in the salt. So what they do, and they've been mining it, you know, for 80 years. I mean, it's been a long time. And what they do is, Right now, as it's a lake during the winter, you know, and it's uh, the salt is dissolved into the water, into the lake, they pump it to the other side of I-80 into big settling ponds. And then during the, the summer months, as the water evaporates out and leaves whatever minerals, they scoop that out and they put the sodium part of it just in big piles. So there's great big, huge piles. I mean, it's like a hundred square miles of just piles of salt. And then they sell the, the, the potassium. So yeah, what, and then as for the salt itself, as the, the summer months heat up, the, the, you know, the water evaporates and it leaves that, you know, crust, which is really not much there anymore. It's it's the salt is nearly gone. The the famous Bonneville salt flats are nearly uh, uh, a thing of the past, which is truly a shame. But if they I, and not that it'll ever happen, but if they were to eliminate all that pumping, would it take like ten years to build back up to where it was twenty and thirty years ago? I I don't I don't think so. I mean I'm not I'm not an expert on this. Yeah. But the area is so vast. I mean, somebody did the calculations of actually trucking it, you know, and it would be a hundred million dollars in fuel alone just because <laughs> it's it's such a huge area. OK. I mean, it's it's we're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of tons of salt. Gotcha. So the, the agreement with the mining company in the it has been that they're supposed to pump the sodium back across that will at some point replenish and you know and there's speculation that that doesn't really work and it actually the the stuff they pump back across uh, is now taking what little salt that's there and bringing it down into the aquifer that's underneath i don't know if any of that's true and, and you know i don't think anybody really knows the exact science of what's going on out there but there's definitely nowhere near the salt that there was years and years ago so gotcha. it is going away and it's not coming back gotcha uh if you are interested in learning more about this uh save the salt.org is the excellent point Peter. Is, yeah. is, is the website for because when you when i was first uh uh a couple weeks ago uh because I was looking at all of the information on your alpha build, it kind of, uh, led me to looking at your land speed record bike. And then I ended up actually at the save the salt website and they've also got a, uh, uh, Facebook page as well. So if you're, <laughs> if you're concerned about the, the historical viability of the Bonneville salt flats, go to save the salt.org. And I know that's a very controversial subject. And there are people who claim that it's not actually as endangered as the save the salt people claim it is. But, uh, you just have to look at the Google satellite view. The, 
the big salt basins south of I-80 are now significantly larger than the salt flats themselves. So, it, yeah, and thank you for bringing that up, Peter. And and I, I don't know, you know, that there's, I you know, I've been going to the salt flats since I was a little kid. And I remember as a kid trying to dig down to see how far deep the salt went. And I, I'll bet I dug a foot down before I finally got water and muddy enough that, you know, that I, I quit digging. And now, I mean, setting up an easy up knocks the salt right off the surface and you're right down to, to dirt. Wow. So Uh-oh. just from my own personal experience, it's it's not it's not there anymore. So. Mm. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, it's it's a real shame. It it truly is. So let let's talk a little bit about your land speed record bike. This is a uh started life as an RD four hundred? Yes. And it's now got uh I'm assuming some uh variant of a RD three fifty LC or RZ three fifty architecture. Yeah, I went with the RZ. I ran it air-cooled. So I bought this as it was originally built by Ed Erlenbach. So it is the fastest RD400 in the world. It's got – it was – sorry, I've got a uh, helicopter going by. I was going to say, it sounds like you live at an airport. <laughs> I, well, I do. The runway is my backyard. <laughs> so I bought this as – existing fastest RD 400 in the world, which was the records were set uh, at El Mirage. And I think the fastest one is 166. So it was very, very fast. And Ed is a really, really smart guy and we're still really good friends. But so I bought this thing and I ran it, ran it as the air cooled version for years. The difference between dry lake bed and the salt flats is you have an inch or a, a mile and a, a third. So you're basically just getting up to speed and then you shut down on a dry lake bed. Uh, the salt flats and what is so insanely difficult and, and, and hard to fathom is you get up to speed at, on the salt and then you have to hold that speed for a full mile. It is the longest mile ever. And trying to dissipate that heat, there's just no way to do it with an air-cooled uh, two stroke. It just doesn't work. I tried for years and years and years. So I eventually started building my, my own engines and I did it with the RZ, uh, just because it has the built in water pump already. And I didn't have to plumb in. I could easily have done the RD 400, but, uh, and then plumbed in an electric water pump and, and whatever, but it just seemed like the RZ was a, a simple solution. So that's what I went with. I have to say, I'm sorry that Garrett's not here because he is, uh, he and his dad have, uh, a lot of experience building RZ motors. And no, no kidding. More kits and stuff like that. Yeah. His, his dad's got a motorcycle machine shop and, uh, they've done some really impressive, uh, RZ based motors out there. So, um, unfortunately he's, he's stuck in the snow. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I love I love the two stroke thing. I just it just absolutely has always made sense to me. I just yeah, love you're two-strokes. you're preaching to the choir with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I raced. I had a I had a ninety five uh, Honda RS one twenty five GP bike. So oh no kidding, what a neat yeah. bike. Yeah, uh, I, and 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 I love that bike for many reasons, including the fact that it weighed one hundred and fifty pounds, and I could physically lift it into my pickup truck. Right, that, right. that I could strip down the motor and re-ring it, and you know, and have it back together and running in under forty minutes. Oh you know, yeah, yeah, thirty if you were really pushing me. <laughs> um, I had a friend who did it in eighteen minutes because we timed him because it was in between oh, no two different races. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I've owned, um, my first street bike was actually an RZ five hundred. I've owned a TZR two fifty. I had a cup of coffee with an RZ three fifty. So you know, I wow, you've had quite a nice collection. Uh, yeah. I'm 
I'm definitely lower lower tech and lower speed. I'm on my fifth Bull Taco, so I, oh really? Yeah, I've yeah. got a Sherpa T. I I love Bull Tacos. Uh, I don't know if you you've got the chat open, but uh, I just posted a uh, very grainy couple of pictures of my very first race bike, which was an old uh, Persang 250 that oh, I, yeah. I turned into a road racer back in the 80s, and uh, taught me a whole lot. And and uh, Actually, it was a very reliable, fun bike. Uh, raced that up in Minnesota at Brainerd, and uh, I've had a number of other ones, mostly junk that barely ran. That's that's the only real thing I ever tried to get any real power out of. Hmm. Um, Sorry, I just uploaded a picture of my uh, of me on my RZ three fifty when I, or excuse me, my RZ five hundred when I uh, raced it. Very cool. Those have become uh uh quite a a collector yeah don't tell me peace i had to let mine go for about three grand back in oh no <laughs> 2000 2002 i i got uh the company i worked for at the time was worldcom and they went out of business and i didn't have the next job lined up because it was the dot bomb era and yeah. you know you need to raise money and that was sitting there and yeah uh, you know it it paid rent for three and a half months, so yeah, yeah. And gotta now do it's, what you got to do at times. Yeah, right? and yeah. Now that thing's worth what eight to twelve thousand dollars. So okay. what, what do you do? And that's a picture of my Sherpa T. What? It, what? Which? That's a a fairly late one, isn't it? That's, yeah, seventy eight. Okay, wow. like like a one ninety something. One ninety nine, I think. Okay, maybe that's a seventy nine then. I can't remember. Oh, that's a sharp looking. I, I've never beautiful. gotten into trials bikes, but uh, I would. I it's always been one of those. Yeah, someday I'd like to. Yeah, I had one as a kid, and or when I was younger, and I I've always kept my eye out open for one, and this one came up for sale i don't know maybe it was in the summer so i picked it up but on adv rider are you familiar at all with uh snarly john in uh australia he uh he's building oh. a land speed record bull taco he wants to he wants to capture the i think it's the 350 single cylinder speed record and he has grafted an entire Rotax top end onto a Boltaco lower end, and it totally fascinates me. No but, kidding. Where is uh, – does he have a build thread or something? I'd love to see this. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. He's got a old Matralla that he I – th- I think he's had it 20 years or something like that. And he's gradually made changes to it. Very, very creative machining going into that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And he's in Australia? Yes, he is in uh, New South Wales. And he's hmm. he's attempting to set the, I think it's the 350 class uh, non-streamlined, I guess, something like that. I'm, I'm not familiar with exactly how the class structure works for land speed records, but... Uh, that's his goal. Well, yeah, you've got the 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 naked and the partial streamliner they call it. Right. So, also posted a picture of uh, an older picture of his bike in uh, air cooled form. It's originally a seventy five Matralla two fifty, and I think he put a, a three sixty Persang motor in it years ago. Huh. But, uh, so I'm I'm attempting to make my own kind of Boltaco mongrel street bike uh, from a whole lot of cast off parts, but uh, I don't have the welding machining experience. So I'm trying to, it's, it's been about a five year project at this point, And I'm, uh, my lovely wife bought me a lathe for my birthday one year. So I've been taking Very long nice. detours into learning how to machine things. And I bought a couple welders and I'm trying to teach myself how to weld well enough to trust my life to it and things like that. So it's, it's not like I'm in a, any kind of a sprint to the finish. This is kind of just something to continue to entertain me as I get older. 
I know you said you've built a new uh, motor for your land speed record bike, and that will be what? Going to the fall of 17, going to the salt? Yeah, th- that'll be the next event. So this past year, 2016, I ran uh, Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials event and World of Speed, and I had some issues. I ended up trying to weld the fourth gear together, um, and I'm not, you know, there's, it was a lot to it, but, um, so it wasn't uh, successful, but the, this engine makes so much power that I'm not really going to build a new engine. I've got one designed. I've pretty much taken it to about where I, I, I think that I, you know, with the 102 bore spacing, I have crappy transfers no matter what. So I've got a little bit of a design change that will help maybe the transfer flow um, if I ever get ambitious enough to do that. But this engine makes enough power that I, I can, I think that I can easily take all the records that, that I, I have my eyes on, uh, if I can get everything else right, you know, but it's, it's land speed racing is insanely difficult. So it's, Having all the stuff come together in that one week window never seems to be, uh, work out as well as we think it will. So classical herding cats. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, you don't think about it all year. You're, you know, working on whatever. And then to have it all come together at the right time, it's, you know, it's pretty magical to that set a record. It really is. I, I admire those guys that. You know, at least I can kind of ride my motorcycle around and do some minor testing. You know, but those like the streamliners, you know, you you have to have everything right once you sit down and start rolling. So I admire some of those guys to have everything perfect. But it's tough. And what's ahead what's ahead for the BMW Alpha? Uh um, I submitted an application to the hand-built show. Um, I, I don't know how that all works. I've never really shown any of my bikes, really. Um, you know, a, a little local show here or there. So um, I'm not sure. So I, I think that maybe I'll show it a little bit this summer and, and just kind of have fun with it. How many hours do you have into that thing? <laughs> Ballpark. <laughs> More than you care to admit, other than more than you care to admit, or more than, or three times as many as you told uh, significant others that, you know. (laughs) I I have to ask, do you have a spouse and or children at home? No. (laughs) No. Son is is grown and gone, and I'm no longer married. So the only (laughs) reason I get to do this stuff is because uh, I've chosen to live a... Hence the, uh, the, uh, I need something to do in the winter time. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. I honestly, I have no idea. I would imagine a couple of thousand hours. I mean, wow. there's an insane amount of, of time. You know, I started this in, I think it was October of 14, right? That'd be, and then all of that. Yeah. So it's been a, what, a year and a half? And it's been a singular focus. So lots and lots of time. And I've learned a lot. I mean, you know, the whole building a plug and making a mold for the body and then learning how to lay up composites and vacuum bag and all that stuff I'd never done before. So it was all brand new. So, sorry, the body is that a, it's a carbon fiber? You did your own carbon fiber it's body on the it? Salt. Which is lava rock. Oh. It's really a cool, cool material. So will you use that in, in regular like epoxy resin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I had not heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, the basalt, I had to buy it. You know, you can get it. Uh, it mostly it seems to be um, Russian manufacturers that are, are making this. But this basalt that I bought came from Germany. And it really is a beautiful material. It's got... Um, 
Oh, it's kind of it's middle between say fiberglass and Kevlar, so it's got some real toughness to it, like so, Kevlar. So this is still something woven. It's not like a chopper gun kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly. It's just like a, a, a carbon fiber. It wow, comes in okay. a in a cloth, and it's really really pretty material. I wished it would show better once it. Once you lay the resin in, it just comes out black. But as a natural fiber, it's kind of like a dark champagne color. Really pretty. So just cool. just to be clear, you didn't chisel this out of basalt. It's not like the the nope. whoever it was that created the CX five hundred with the with the chiseled stone bodywork on it. No, no, <laughs> no. I made a mold. So I made the plug, and I used I think eight gallons of Bondo. <laughs> or filler, I should say, um, just because I was never happy with the shape. I just kept sanding and sanding and sanding, and it just wasn't right. So I, you know, put another skin on and sand and sand until I was, you know, and that's just the nutty perfectionist in me that uh, I have to somehow control. But um, so I finally got it to the shape that I wanted, and then I pulled a four-piece mold off of that plug. And then I laid up the the basalt. Actually, I did um, a hand layup with with fiberglass as a first to see how it would work. And then I did a, a vacuum bag with the basalt. And yeah, and that's what the actual body is. Hmm. That's that's cool. I have to I have to look. We're definitely going to look up the 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 material there. Um, so is it? Uh, it's lighter lighter than fiberglass or because of all the resin it kind of doesn't matter it's stronger i'm assuming but is it is it any lighter than fiberglass you know i think you know with like any composite it really the base material is well I, you know it's like uh, carbon fiber is so stiff and so strong you just don't have to use as much to get the stiffness as you do with fiberglass and right. the salt is maybe in the middle where the fiberglass panels are definitely heavier, but I didn't have to, you know, I only used, oh, it was four layers of basalt. Now I can't even remember. And I had to use probably eight or nine layers of fiberglass okay. to get it. So it yeah. was, you know, a workable thing. So it's definitely lighter. Yeah, cool. And I don't know about impact packed and all of, of of that kind of information. Hopefully I'd never find out that was <laughs> the point of <laughs> yeah. this project. So and I certainly could have used fiberglass. It just the basalt had kind of a cool factor to me. No, absolutely. I mean it makes for a good story too, right? I mean Yeah. So that that, that always increases the 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 attraction when there's Oh, what'd you do for that? This, oh, you did this? No, I did this. What's that? Okay. Yeah, right. well, let me, so, let me so what is the state of Alpha now? Has it been painted? I know last time I saw yes. you were working on things like uh, wiring up turn signals and making new levers for it and things like that. Right, which is th – that's all pretty well done. Uh, the turn signals, I'm still – I have all machined, and I mounted them last night. I still need to wire them in. Um, I just got uh, uh, today stainless – the braided stainless lines for the steering. So I proved this, this high, crazy hydraulic steering system. I just had – Press on rubber lines to kind of prove the, that it worked and it all seemed to work okay. So I had them made in braided stainless today. So I've got to put that back together and then it's pretty much done. I mean, there's really, you know, I've got, I've got to mount, uh, the boost gauge and some just real minor things. So we're doing a final photo shoot. The hanger that used to store the Enola Gay which is in Wendover at the Wendover airport is open and available. So in two weeks, we're going to go and do a final photo shoot. And then June, who's the photographer in, in this, um, he's on Instagram as nostalgia memoir. Um, he is kind of, I've put it in his hands to do all of the kind of exposure and stuff. And the deal is that I don't show it. And he gets to kind of run with the glory of, of being able to 
you know, debut it or whatever. So and so the plan is not this coming weekend, but the following weekend. Very cool. And and the the big question is, is this going to be writable? I hope so. I mean, I built it to be writable. And I know you now, s- you kind of said that early on that it wasn't just an art piece. You wanted to make it a a, a running functional motorcycle. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it will be street legal. So I mean, it's you know it'll be registered and and the the whole bit. If I can get somebody to pass the safety on it, I mean, it's going to be questionable uh, that any of this is is doable, but. Um, yeah, my intention is to have it rideable. I I'm concerned about the steering. Um, you know, all this stuff is you know just kind of imagineered. You know, it all functions, but I'm scared that under braking that it's going to load up all of the linkage in that center hub steering and it's going to lock up. I don't know. There's a lot of uh, you know it works statically, but dynamically, I, I don't know what's going to happen. So we're now, from the, from the pictures, I, I'm having trouble visualizing how the 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 grips actually do. They pivot right inside of the bodywork. Yeah, so they are the handlebars themselves are just short, like clip-on extensions, and then they hook to two um, foot-long arms that are just inside the bodywork. And so they only move maybe a half an inch each way, and then they are hooked to a, um, a, a increasing ratio linkage that goes to a, um, a a master cylinder. Does that make sense at all? Y- yes, yes, <laughs> it, it it does. It just I, I can see that would be for somebody who's got. Uh, a whole bunch of muscle memory and, and your, your premotor cortex conditioned to expecting the, the, the grips to pivot on the center line of the motorcycle. I could see where that would feel really strange to. Yeah. And uh, the hydraulic steering, I don't know that there's any feedback. I, you know, I don't know if it's even workable. Well, so, I mean, and, normal normal car normal car steering has has hydraulics as uh, hydraulic. I mean, granted, hydraulic to mechanical, but still, I mean, there's feedback through that, so I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, but that and, was the big thing they complained about with this. The what was it? The Elf that had the hydraulic center hub steering yeah. for right. the GP bike was they were saying you couldn't you you had a really hard time feeling what the front end was doing. And apparently when – and this goes back to an article I read because I've never found reference to it. So this is just floating in my memory. When Bomoda came, first came out with the Tessie, it was hydraulically actuated. And it didn't work out because of feel, so they went to a linkage right, system. Right, right. Yes, I, I, my memory corroborates yours that I do yeah. remember reading that. When in doubt, ask Kevin Cameron, right? <laughs> right, right. If we could, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly with the overhang and how low it is, it's very limited on on where I can ride it. It's not like I can go drive up and down streets and go in and out of parking lots. It, it's just too low. But on a limited level, yeah, it's, it, I'll, I'll ride it around. After all that work on that fairing, I can imagine they, that's got to be something very fraught with uh, <laughs> anxiety. You- I would cry. I really would. The nice thing that is, though, I have a mold now. So to pop out a new body is really mm-hmm. not – I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's not like I would lose everything. Right, right. So is it ever going to see the salt? Yeah, I'll take it out there. I'll, I'll take it out as a display piece when I run. But because truthfully, you know, that would salt, be the ultimate photo shoot is to have yeah, that sitting and, on the on the salt. 
and the debut this debut photo shoot that's what we wanted to do but it's just you know it's a lake i mean it's a you know wave lake right now mm-hmm. so it's really not even it, workable but yeah the as far as riding it on the salt the salt is so incredibly corrosive i mean like the my race bike as soon as it comes I'm done racing for the year. Every single bolt comes off of it and it all gets soaked in baths of water and you still can't stop the corrosion. It's just so I, I really wouldn't ride it out there because I'd have to rebuild the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. You I think don't know. But then my ego gets all involved when I'm out on the salt anyway. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just have to get some Hollywood producer to offer you enough money to have it in a movie and then that's worth it to do the salt, the, the video shoot on the salt, right? Yeah. You know. Let me ask you, I, I don't want to steer us too much in the in another direction, but um, on the center hub steering, had you had experience with that or was that something you simply, you know, read Tony Foles book and said, I think I can make this work? Pretty much. I mean, I thought I want to do a center hub steering mechanism. And I mean, Honestly, part of the, the thought process is someday I'd like to do a streamliner for the salt. I mean, and so, you know, there's always that in the back of my head. And so the learning curve of doing this may have a, a, a practical application someday. But, you know, when I found I so I just started, you know, Googling any center hub steering mechanism I could find and absorbing all the inf- every bit of, of information I could possibly find. Um, including Tony Fole, who's a friend on Facebook, and I've gone through all of his stuff, in, all of his posts, including his book and his online information. Um, and anybody who really had anything to do with any anything. Um, and then I found, uh, and I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a guy that had patented this um, center hub steering mechanism, which is it uses two, you know, two links. It's just a typical Ackerman link, you know, just like the front of your car. And that's what it pivots on are these two U-shaped links. That's the Parker one? No, no, no it's it not Parker. And you, I don't know that anybody's ever built this or if this guy ever built it, but he's got a patent on it. I will tell you, reading through your build thread on ADV Rider, when I got to that point, that's where I really – got excited about your build because I probably took 20 minutes staring at that picture, trying to visualize that action of those two little arms in there. It doesn't actually pivot on a post. It, it kind of swings right to left as it turns. Am I explaining that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So instead of a kingpin, which is what a normal, you know, most every other center hub steering is, is you used. Yeah. It uses those kind of C. So there are two C shaped links and the C side of the open side is bolted to the axle that's bolted to the, the A arm. And then the closed side of the C is bolted to the hub. So as it rotates through the arc, um, yeah, on those two pieces, it's yeah. But I mean, if you look up Ackerman Link, that's it's exactly what it is. Eric, if you go to the very first page of his uh, build thread, he's got a couple of YouTube videos that actually show it in action, and even looking at it moving, you're like, okay, I. Th- think i understand how this works <laughs> right, right uh gene michael thiers is the guy that i stole the idea from so hopefully he's not too defensive about me using his idea so and then i i used his idea and then i incorporated the the hydraulic cylinder and actuator and all of that stuff in as my kind of addition to that yeah, that's a bit, uh, the whole thing is mind bending from, from the amount of work that you did on the aesthetics of it. Cause really the frame, parts of the frame almost looks like you took the engine and you put it in a milk crate and then just bolted everything onto the. And that's kind of, I think that's a good, good description. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, 
it, you know, and I think uh, motorcycles kind of have their own personality. I know that's kind of weird. They all seem to work out the way they need to work out. You know, and so you start throwing stuff at it and they just kind of organically take shape. And this has to fit here and it has to go here. So a lot of it, you know, I mean, I, I guess it, it, it is very pretty and, and cool when it's done. But I think that it kind of decided the shape and stuff. I, I want to take a step back. Finished products organically get to that state that way. That exact issue of this has to go there and then it has to go there and and this needs to fit there is why 98% of projects die somewhere between this is a great idea and there I'm finished. That's what I think is so exciting about people who do real custom one-off motorcycle builds. That whole point of, okay, when you run up against that point where, oh, this doesn't fit where I wanted it to or where I thought I was going to put it. What do I do now, at least as a spectator, is where it gets really fascinating. Wow, very cool. Thank you. Um, I, I do have to admit that I've probably built two complete frames because I rebuild a lot of stuff. I mean, I get done with it and it doesn't work for me and I'm not, I'm so tenacious I'll just remake it. I'll do it different. I'll keep working at it until it satisfies me. Okay. It's not like it's sure, you know, imagineer this stuff and it all comes together. I rework a lot, a lot of stuff. There's a, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Troy Trepanier. He makes uh, high-end custom cars. Um, the kind, it's kind of like you were like, it takes 2000 hours to make one of his, to build one of his cars. And it's funny because I interviewed him when I was doing some SEMA coverage a number of years ago, and he very much the same thing. It's like, yeah, the good shops, the bad shops, what ends up looking amazing and what doesn't. It's all about you, sometimes you just have to do it eight times until you figure out how to get it to work. <laughs> just yeah. and, and get it to work right and look yeah, right. A lot of truth to that. And everything is a compromise. It's Building stuff to me, and especially Alpha, has been just a, a really – um, difficult thing for me because at some point you have to say, okay, I I've got to back off and just let this be. You know, it's not going to be perfect. This isn't going to be perfect, but I can't, I've got to move on with the project. And there's that, that line for me is the most difficult part of building. Cause I think I could spend for the rest of my life on one bracket, redoing and redoing and redoing because <laughs> it would never be perfect enough. But I have to walk away and say, okay, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. What is, um, perfection or perfection is the fault or good enough is the fault. Wow, Craig, there's something about good enough and perfection. Per per perfection is the enemy of excellence is the way I've heard yes. it. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Yes. Very nice. Very yes. nice. But it's been a very gratifying and fun project. It really has been. Yeah, I can. I can see. So, so I guess the question is, it, now that it's essential, well, let's call it essentially done. Then what? <laughs> What's next? I, I don't know. Um, you know what? I'll Mehmet has, and, and Mehmet's whole plan here is he wants to move to America and build bikes. Um, <laughs> we all want to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, and so he's got uh, his next design is another just awesome, incredible, beautiful piece. Let's see if I can. Is that the Alfa Romeo kind of one? No, that's one of them. It's it's another BMW. It's and I don't I, I don't know if I've posted it in that thread. May have to. It's and I can't even remember that, but it's very black and sinister looking, and it's kind of the same thing. Uh, Mehmet loves land speed racing. That's why his his designs kind of uh, mimic uh, streamlined motorcycles. Um, but uh, yeah, and and it might be uh, a, a possibility. I know I really have got to focus back on the race bike and 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 get the records that. You know, I, I, I need to. So uh, really, th that's probably 
this summer's focus is maybe playing around with alpha. But I don't know. You know, it's yeah. I've got a GPZ 750 turbo that needs a restoration and it's something that I've been meaning to do for a couple of years. I probably that's my next project is gotcha. the turbo bike. So. And so this is coming at completely out of left field, but as I'm thinking about some of the stuff you're talking about and your philosophy, some of your philosophies you're talking about, I'm like, OK, I want to see you and um Shania Kimura get together and do some kind of crazy build, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that guy's a really interesting. He builds some just beautiful, incredible things. He's he's been on the salt flats a few times. When yeah, I, I just yeah. I've I've loved his stuff for in in the middle of all the weird chopper craze stuff. His stuff was you know for custom builds was was so nice because it was so anti you know super super exaggerated everything it was completely right, stripped down right. and stuff like that and um and, and in some ways yours was, yeah yeah. And, yeah exactly um and the one thing i like about yours is it's out there but more of an, an art deco kind of way versus you know it has a 30s feel to it versus some kind of gaudy modernism so that's i that's what i really appreciate about it yeah, I loved the design and I followed like the the nose piece isn't to Mehmet's design. It just didn't work out. And then we had a little bit of friction because he thinks that it should be something. But that uh, Millie Megalia BMW, they, this 328 car they built, it was a one-off piece that has these great big huge kidney grills and I just – it just has always really made sense to me. I think it's I, one of the I, most beautifully pen cars ever. I immediately saw that in that in that grill when or in the front end of the house. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what I had in my mind as I put that nose nose together. And that's and that's a throwback to that old early BMW or you know even the the Dixie era of BMW cars. Yep, it's great. Yeah, so hopefully there's enough that makes sense, um, you know, that anybody looks at it and sees the the old and the new. And you know, I, lately I have discussions that I've had with people both online and in person. There's a real backlash to motorcycles as rolling pieces of art that are not functional transportation. But I think there is a fundamental huge difference between somebody who says, I am building this as a piece of art and someone who takes something that could be a legitimate piece of transportation and they call it art because it doesn't work functionally because they don't have the skills to make it work or they were lazy and they could have made the same design functional and they just didn't bother. So I, th I think what it's not a matter of degree. That's two totally different things by nature. And just the fact that you started out looking at something that was never intended to exist in three dimensions and said, I'm going to build that. I, I just think that's totally cool. <laughs> Regardless of what, you know, how, much this ever turns a wheel or not. I just think that's a fantastic uh, pursuit in and of itself. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, part of what I do all day is build industrial pump parts or something that is completely uninteresting and nobody gets to see. And I, I feel like I, I have a, a, this talent that needs to be that I need to push myself and needs to be shown. And part of the reason that I even started the the land speed bike thread is I get asked all the time, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a machinist and everybody rolls their eyes and it's like, well, you know, if you didn't go to college, you, you know, you really have wasted your life and whatever. I and I think, completely no, there's a that. whole, there's a whole interesting, uh, uh, part of manufacturing that people don't really get exposure to, especially the, the late, last few generations oh yeah that you know i mean i grew up in you know my dad was a machinist so i mean it was just normal for me but most kids don't get to see that they and they have in their mind that machinists or welders or fabricators work these miserable jobs and they're dirty and they you know they don't make any money and they're you know they you know it's a miserable thing and i would like really kind of showcase 
And maybe some kid out there can look at that and think, wow, that's cool. I want to do that. I want to yep. learn how to do that. There's a practical application to this you know, real art yep. that's I, being lost. I also think today there is something still very magical about actually making something. I, mm -hmm. I do document layout for a living and I stare at the screen of a Macintosh for eight or nine hours a day. I work so much in that virtual space that I truthfully don't want to have any CNC machines. I don't want in my spare time to fall back into that extremely, I don't know what you call it, synthetic, cybernetic, theoretical realm. I want to handle something in my hands. I yeah. want to, you know, be able to feel a surface and go, oh, that's too rough. I need to sand that down. I, you know, take, take a micrometer and measure something to find out if it's really as round as you think it is. Mm -hmm. To me, that kind of tactile involvement with three dimensional objects is something that we have a whole generation of people that don't have that same attraction to. Yep. I, um, I mean, along the same line, same lines as you, Mark, my, um, my grandfather was, was a tool and die man. And, um, you know, and I remember seeing all his, you know, measuring equipment and stuff like that and all his micrometers and things like that as a kid. And then I was early high school, I guess, and he was just getting ready to retire and took me through the factory where he worked. Um, and I kind of like understood machining because where I grew up in Indiana was sort of dead industrial town. It was one of the few manufacturing plants left. And um, it just made the huge impact on me. And I've always you know, I always like cars and stuff anyways, but that made a, made a huge impact. So I've always appreciated, you know, the, the manufacturing part of, of everything. And then when you, as a, when you get into hobbies as cars and motorcycles, if you, if you can't turn a wrench, you're not going to get very far anyways. So, um, and, and agree with you about the kids today, but I think we may be getting, I don't want to say we're turning a corner, but we're looking at, we're approaching a corner with some of this because things like, We've become so virtual, so throwaway, so everything has to be replaced every six months that I think people are understanding. Um, sorry, I'm going to go on a philosophical tangent here for a second. Um, tangible hard goods again. So, for example, vinyl making a huge comeback. Why? Because I can have 7,000 songs on my hard drive, but that doesn't mean anything. But when I pick up an album and can like, you know, and, and that's something physical there. Right. So that's tangible. Um Film photography is making a big comeback now because everyone has their iPhone and that's great. But when you shoot with film, it's a completely different experience and you print it out and whatever. So hopefully we're getting to a point where at least people understand permanence and, and physical, tangible creation of, 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 of items. So anyways, sorry, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, I think that's I think that's beautifully said. You know, the the kid that did the upholstery on on Alpha is uh I don't know. I would say mid twenties, a uh, guy that is, you know, he's got the potential or he can do anything he wants and he really wants to do motorcycle parts. And he works in a shop with a bunch of other young guys and they repair motorcycles and they have a little paint booth set up. And there's just kind of a whole uh, uh, community of, of young guys that have kind of shunned uh, I mean, you even throw back to kind of a hippie mindset of we're not we've seen the way you did it, that you're older, the older generation. And it's not acceptable. We're going to go back to kind of basics and build stuff and do that. stuff. So I see this um, reacceptance of some of those kind of basic traits. I, th I think I would totally embrace. I, th I think you brought up something. When you were saying that, you know, you spend your day making industrial parts that aren't necessarily aesthetically pleasing or quote unquote sexy to make, uh, there is a certain amount of that pays the bills that people need to understand and not only just literally pay the bills, but that's also the repetition and the knowledge and experience you're going to gain for all those creative projects and just to know how to have the personal discipline that 
you're not bored after 20 minutes and you know, it might take you eight hours to do this one tedious task or, you know, some, okay, you've got 20 of these little flanges you're going to have to make for your really cool projects. After the first one, it's not a creative endeavor. It's just you having the, the brass tacks to sit down and do something repetitively that I think we're starting to see people recognize the value in, in that kind of personal self-discipline that you can't always do what you want to do because everything worth doing has some steps in it that you're just going to go, Oh, this sucks. But if I want the reward, I've got to knuckle down and I've got to do something that isn't necessarily all rainbows and butterflies. Totally agree with that. You know, it's, uh, we, for quite a while, we got kids that would go to, uh, whatever trade school, um, and they would learn how to program the CNCs and they would come into the shop with these ideas of where they fit in in the place, but they couldn't file apart. They couldn't do some of the basic things that you learn, like you say, from that kind of uh, working your way up through that and doing those tedious tasks that are the difference between making something really great and just making something. Yep. And to go back to a point you made earlier too, Mark, um, about, you know, trades not, not being, or being kind of poo pooed. It's, it, it's funny because someone's like, Oh, you could, should go to college and be a teacher or a nurse. Okay. So you're going to run up all this debt and work for 50 or $60,000 a year. If you're lucky, uh, in the same time, you could be an apprentice, actually make money as an apprentice. And then once you have your card, you know, you'll make that same amount of money, if not more than any teacher or nurse ever would. Without right? that. Yeah. Without the debt. Exactly. Yeah. So you're miles ahead at, at, at that point. And I think that's a, I hate to say it's a lie that's been perpetuated for the last 20 or 30 years, but I think it has. And um, I think that we need to get out in front of that because there's a huge, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there a huge demand for any kind of skilled trades, whether it's huge. HVAC? Right now, uh, it's it, just insane. Yeah. Welders, plumbers, electricians, and, as you say, machinists. And we have this attitude that if you're really serious about your future, you're going to go to college and going into the workforce with you know, something like uh, an apprenticeship program or a technical degree and going to work is for people who want instant gratification. You're not going to get it. You're going to be an apprentice for a lot of years and it's going to mm -hmm. take all the time, perhaps more time than somebody's going to spend in college before you're really able to do the things that you want to do. There is as much paying your dues in that trade career as you're going to have if you want to be, you know, somebody who mm -hmm. has a master's degree in some academic subject. Absolutely. There's uh sorry, there's also a, a great book I read five, six years ago. Um, I had to pull it up cause it's been a while since I read it. And then I, I, I lend it out. And of course I, whenever I lend a book, I never get it back, which I guess I should know better, but <laughs> that would um, be a I, good sign though. Right. True. If I hand a book to someone and they at least read it, if I never get it back, at least someone else read the book. So, um, but it's called Shop Class as Soulcraft. And Soulcraft. yeah, I've read um, it a couple of times. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a great book, and and would recommend. It. And it's about a guy who's highly educated and felt unfulfilled by you know the so called I want to say glamour job, but you know the the job you're supposed to have or whatever your every parent wants their kids to have, and he felt unfulfilled, and then he just ended up like you know, having a small shop in Chicago or some little backwater thing and then worked on motorcycles. And that was actually how he like felt good about himself. So, yeah. um, so yeah, any, everyone should go and read that one. It's, it's not, a, it's not a true motorcycle book. It's more a philosophical book, yeah, right, but, right. but there's some really good stuff in there. So, and not taking away from anybody who's done any other jobs. I just no. wanted to showcase what my little world is like and the, the, the abilities and the things, the cool things that can be created and, and built. So, I, you yep. know, everybody thinks that what the other guy learned to do is fascinating and impressive. Uh, you know, I have people that look at the work I do and to them, it's like, wow, how, do, how do you know how to do that? When you learn it one step at a time, it just becomes part of your knowledge. It's a very ordinary thing. I'm sure if I was a, 
you know, a movie actor being on a movie set at some point becomes a very routine thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody is jealous of what the other guy can do. And the fact of the matter is, you can't do everything. If I had 20 lifetimes, I still would not be able to pursue all the things that I would love to do in life. So, Absolutely. You know, you have to have that that other guy that at some point strokes your ego a little bit and says, wow, what you do is really cool, because I think we can all lose lose sight of that. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. We're over an hour. Uh Mark, I want to thank you so much for coming. This has been really interesting and very rewarding for us. I hope you enjoyed it. I very much did. Thank you very much for having me. If uh, if people want to follow your work uh, or follow you anywhere on any kind of social media, your, your coming photo shoot, where, where should they look for that? Um. So the the photo June will do the photos, and that's he's on Instagram as Nostalgia Memoir. And then my um, name on Instagram is Maker Shaker, and I you know, I show some of the stuff that I do. Not I don't post it a ton. And then ADV Rider has in the um, what is it? What is it's in the some assembly required section, right? But I'll go ahead required. and I will in our Hooniverse post that we post up every Tuesday. I'll have pictures of all the things that are. Uh, appropriate to this conversation, and I will put in your link to your uh, ADV writer build thread. Okay, and then that also has my a link to the Land Speed Bike uh, thread, and that was from 2013. And I haven't really updated it, but it's you know evolved way and, beyond that. But it's I'm, still. I'm assuming you're okay with me putting pictures of your your bike and the Land Speed Record bike on Hooniverse as well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I already did on. <laughs> uh, yes, and I just found June's uh, Instagram page. It is nostalgia underscore memoir, M E M O I R, for those of you who struggle with French class. And uh, he's got lots of cool pictures of bikes, some of them on the salt as well. So, yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, look for us on uh, on Hooniverse and also follow us on Twitter at The False Neutral and also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash The False Neutral. As Pete said, every Tuesday, this stuff goes up on, on Hooniverse and we try to share it out on all the socials. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Eric, for joining us. I'm so sorry that Garrett wasn't here because I'm sure he would have enjoyed this conversation as well. Take it easy and we'll see everybody next week. Thank you.